This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. My special guest is my good, good friend and one of my all-time favorite people in the whole world. You know her as the uh, New York Times bestselling author of the Mrs. Murphy Mystery Series. She's only sold you know, a little over 7.5 million copies of her books in print. Of course, we got to talk about my good friend, Rita Mae Brown. Rita Mae Brown is going to be here with Sneaky Pie Brown, of course, as always, talking about the latest book, A Hiss Before Dying. So we've got to pick her brain a little bit about what this latest mystery is. We won't tell you how it's solved, but we'll leave a little teaser in there and find out how it came about. And, uh, of course, then talk to Rita Mae about her writing styles and what she's got going on. And you never know with Rita Mae Brown. She may just throw some tidbits in there about the world and getting us all straight again. So we're going to get excited <laughs> about that. <laughs> So everybody, hang tight. We'll come back right after these commercial breaks. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Tired of wasting money on giant bags, boxes, and jugs of litter that don't last? Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter that lets you use less and get more. World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to deliver outstanding odor control and easy cleanup. It's lightweight, 99% dust-free, and pet, people, and planet-friendly. It's even flushable. Make the switch to World's Best Cat Litter and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is the New York Times bestselling author and my very good friend, Rita Mae Brown. Rita Mae, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's fun to hear your voice again. Oh, it's great to hear from you, too. I'm always excited to talk to you about about life and books and writing and all the great stuff going on. And we definitely got to hear a little bit more about this latest, latest book with you and Sneaky Pie Brown, A Hiss Before Dying. Tell the audience a little bit about the book and uh, what makes this one a little bit more unique. Well, it starts with the animals, the corgi and the two cats walking across a hayfield. They're going back home. An eagle, of which there are quite a few now. We've had a big comeback in uh, Virginia and the Chesapeake area. Well, probably all up and down the East Coast, really. An eagle is flying low, and there's something hanging from its giant claw. Of course, it turns out to be a human eyeball. So that's how it starts. And the eagle flies off with this eyeball. And the animals, they don't know what it is. I mean, yes, they know what it is, but they have no idea how this happened, et cetera, et cetera. And they can't tell the people. So they more or less forget about it. But, of course, this turns out to be your first clue that something is amiss. And I, and I don't want to say what it is except that it is an illegal business that is worth billions. And they have stumbled upon it. And, of course, it gets worse and worse as, as mysteries go. But the research just fascinates me. I have to find all these things out. I mean, I could really be a big-time criminal by now. <laughs> you, you've got a <laughs> handle on everybody. I think, they, I think yeah, you should I, find enough damaging information that maybe you can hold it over some people's heads and uh, see if you can uh, change the world that way. 
well, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that's going to happen in Washington with these <laughs> hearings. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, what is the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. You never know what's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, so far it's been pretty but, bulletproof. But that that's a whole whole new ball game on that one. You know, it really is. But, you know, we're talking about crimes. There's now a double storyline in these sneaky pies, and this is the third time I've used it. I think I'm just going to keep using it as forever and ever because I'm having so much fun with it. We're in the 18th century, and of course there are crimes that occur then that pay off in the 21st. But what's happening, this is 1786, is it's the Article of Confederation, and everything is falling apart. Every little state, well, they're not so little, but the states, they print their own money. North Carolina doesn't even have a printing press. They have to write it out. Every state has to have a militia, but they can't declare war. And there's no overall command. It is a total and complete mess. And states can tax one another when goods cross state lines. So everything is falling apart, and people are beginning to ask, why did we fight the revolution? Well, we fought the revolution to get rid of a king. But Congress was proving highly inept. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) And, and of course, they don't know what's going to happen. But also, some of it takes place in a house of ill repute in Richmond, which, oh, that was fun. But this one that I'm just starting now will get us to the Constitutional Convention. But, you know, it was a near miss. The fact that this country survived is a miracle. And then again, you look all throughout our history, and there really are these miracles. Yeah, looking back, you mentioned just a few things that were just sort of highlighted, uh, you know, just popped in my head. When you talk about history, you know, you always hear that terminology of, you know, we should learn from our history so we don't repeat it. But do you think people actually learn from the history so we don't repeat it? Or is it more of we repeat it and then realize, oh, I guess I should look to see if we've done that. (laughs) to that bad way in the past. I think everybody believes the world started when they came into it. So it is difficult to learn from history, but our founding fathers did. And there are periods in human life when people do learn and they study a lot. You know, the ancient Romans did, the Greeks did. And then you get to the beginnings of the Enlightenment, where we where we discovered the Greek again and learned all over. But where we are now is, strangely, we are not learning a, a darn thing from one another, but we're beginning to learn from animals. Look at all the books that are out now about animals, like The Genius of Birds, Ackerman's book. And then there's another one that just got reviewed in the Wall Street Journal this weekend, and forgive me, I don't know the title. And then there's a book about, again, this all gets back to animals and geography and stuff like that. But there's a book by Andrea Wolf called The Invention of Nature. And I look at this stuff and I think, well, maybe we are waking up. Now, so we could just do it across the board. But maybe that's too much to, to ask for. But there is now no doubt. I think in most people's minds, that animals are sentient creatures, they have logic, and they also have senses far superior to our own. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and it's very interesting you say that because I fully believe you know, we're starting to learn these things and we're starting to learn uh, that our animals not only mean so much more to us, but we have so much more to learn from them. And, and you know, and, and for the work that I do every single day, it's a learning experience. Every time I think I've got a, a decent handle on it, some new uh, twist happens or the animals uh, you know, share something different with me that, that I never had thought of before or ever encountered before. But you, you seem to have, in my opinion at least, you have this side of the the world, the consciousness, the people that are on that path, 
for that shift in our realizing these things and learning from everything, including our animals. And then now all of a sudden it seems like we've taken a step back and there's this whole other side or other section that refuses to learn from the past and wants to go back to some sort of mysterious days of old when things were supposedly so much better. That is upsetting. They reinvent history however they want it to turn out, you know, and it's not that easy. Well, you know, all of the upset now about 1861 to 1865 and the statues, you know, there are people that don't have enough to eat. Mm -hmm. There are elderly people in our cities that can't pay their heating bills. And some of them have pets. It's the only love and happiness they have. And they will feed their pets before they feed themselves. It seems to me that solving the sorrows of the living are a lot more important than the dead. Yeah, absolutely. And to put focus on things that, you know, really, if you step back, you have to think, you know, is it really that important? Is it, it's almost silly to a degree. You know, I think that it was almost, my viewpoint on it is if you have $10 in your pocket and that $10 has to last you for this week, what are you going to do with that $10? You know, how are you going to spend that $10? How are you going to you know, make the biggest impact? Are you going to buy food for yourself? Are you going to take care of your animals or both? Are you going to give some to someone else who doesn't have the $10? Or are you simply just going to just throw it away, blow it up, you know, do something with it that, that doesn't – that still leaves you hungry and wondering what's going on in the world? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because we're now in the middle of this opiate crisis. And I'm next to West Virginia, which is the worst suffering state in the United States. And I think animals don't do this. Animals don't drink themselves insensate. They're not going to take drugs that alter their minds, even if it makes them happier. We are this strange animal that will literally tamper with reality in order to avoid it. Yes. I don't understand what's wrong with us. Yeah, well, and, it, and it's true. And then we, uh, as a society, you know, I can't say this is true for everyone, but, uh, you know, in the case that uh, in those situations, then we turn around and, and point fingers at someone else. So somebody else's blame or someone else's, uh, the reason it happened was due to something else in the world. You know, it's funny you say that. You have your two dogs, and of course I have uh, the foxhounds and my rescues. <laughs> And, you know, they can do that, too. I mean, have you ever walked into a room and something has been torn up and one is looking at the other as though that dog did it but not me? <laughs> you think, you little stinker. Oh, God. I mean, they do make me laugh. Honest, I, I was out this morning and I walked the hounds in the morning, and it's just one of the joys of my life. And um, I've got youngsters out there. They're a year old, so they're big. But they're like all young creatures, whether it's little kids or kittens or foals or whatever. They're seeing all these things for the first time and the excitement and the curiosity. And you realize we share this. You know, all sentient creatures share this marvel at the world. Absolutely. And, and I think that's how you, you know, that's the best way to, is, wouldn't you say that would be the best way to take a look at life in general? That every morning we wake up and we should be glad, A, that we're here, B, what you know, productive thing are we going to do today? And the third thing is, you know, the old saying of, you know, stop and smell the roses. You know, take the time to actually just enjoy some simple things instead of being rushed and feeling like we have to get something done, have to, and we have to be here, we have to do that. And uh, actually take that time to slow down and, and, like you said, take a walk with your animals, take care of them in the morning, take a long, you know, if you're walking your dog on 
on the street, for God's sake, put away your cell phone. That's <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? You know, even it's funny you say that. I mean, I cannot imagine being in a city, walking a dog, and talking on a cell phone. They say in the South, you know, hand a Bible, I guess it would be, or the hand of God. In fact, I was driving my car through our, our neighborhood, uh, you know, and it's a nice neighborhood, a lot of sidewalks, places to jog, walk, bike, everything's great, perfect place to walk your dogs. And someone had their little chihuahua, and it was sort of a few feet, you know, in front of them. And I looked at the lady, and she was talking on her cell phone. Now, okay, so she's not paying attention to the little chihuahua who's, who's on the sidewalk next to the road. But then she, I noticed she didn't even have a leash on that little oh, dog. Oh, no. So she was not paying attention to the dog. She was uh, letting it walk right next to the curb. And I can imagine, I've had this conversation many times when I've uh, you know, uh, highly suggested to someone that, you know, gee, you know, I've seen a lot of things happen. You know, I, This is what I do for a living, and I work a lot with missing animals from around the world. I've seen uh, you know, animals sort of like wander too far into the street or get distracted by a squirrel or uh, you know, a, uh, a deer comes running out of the woods and that little dog wasn't expecting it. And you bring it up to him politely, and it's like, oh, well, my dogs never run away. My dogs, there's no reason to have them on leash. And I'm like, really? <laughs> what about all the other idiots around here? How about just the, the stupid drivers that are around here? They could be the one causing the problem. Yeah, maybe we should put the people on a leash. <laughs> maybe we're doing this backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. But, maybe. but it's funny that you bring it up because there's, there are things in the book, The Hits of Death, where the animals know what the human routine is. So when the routine is messed up or something isn't quite right, they know right away. And this one thing, you know, that starts with the eagle, they get curious and they decide, well, you know, what is going on on top of the mountain? So they go up and try to find the wildlife and, you know, is, is there anything going on? Are there people trespassing up there? And, of course, there are. That's, a, you know, another clue that hits you. And you look at this and you realize they understand. They understand what we do. Like your dogs know what's going to happen when you get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've you know, got me they, very they well trained. They know exactly yeah. <laughs> what's going to happen. And so they have a sense of what happens when there's disorder, and that just fascinates me. Yeah, and it is. You know, we, we say that uh, our animals love their routines, and they absolutely do. We, in turn, as humans, we love our routines, though we like to say we're uh, spontaneous and, you know, going with the flow. But no, you know, we have a certain way we wake up every morning, and, you know, the, the coffee's got to be ready at a certain time. And <laughs> if, <laughs> if any of that goes awry, then we're in trouble for the day. Well, I have, uh, I have two horses here that are very naughty, and they jump out of everything. It doesn't matter how big the fence is. They're going over it. So basically, you just give in. Well, the weekends, I take care of them, and they got into the barn. They know how to open everything. So it was a disaster. And I walked in there, and I thought, you know what? You're like two bad kids. And um, the horses that Harry owns, the one character in the book, they're actually fairly – they're a little nicer than mine. Like if she opens the doors, they'll really go into their stall, not somebody else's, grab food and run away. Mm-hmm. But that is also funny to me, the idea of theft. I mean when horses do this and when dogs do this, when they take another dog's bone, are they thieving or do they just want it? I mean do they have a concept of theft? And I'm starting to wonder about this. I think it all depends on who you're talking to. 
You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the key. That's the key. It's uh, I think if it's for us, my my smallest schnauzer, she rules the roost. So it's okay for her her brother, uh, who's uh, twice her size, to play with the toys as long as it's not the toys she's choosing to play with or she needs to play with them first uh, and then he can have second dips and it has nothing to do with dominance and dominance training it's just sort of the way it is and that's uh, he's accepted that i think he knew the agreement and put his paw print on it before he came into the house and 99 percent of the time they get along splendidly the other thing that just fascinates me i haven't put this in a book yet but i will is why do they want the toy that is totally destroyed? All the stuffing is out. The eyes are off of it. I mean, it is just a complete mess. And you put down a new one, and you know, okay, they look at it for a minute, but then they go back to this rag. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. We have literally thousands of toys. I've shared this before, but uh, you know, my previous life, I was a telecom executive, and I traveled the world selling technology for 20 years. I did this, and uh, I always had this nice little routine that I would have a collection of toys in the back of my car. And when I got to uh, the park and ride at the airport before return from a trip, get in the car, get ready to drive home, I would always take two of those toys because I had two dogs at the time and put it in my suitcase. And then when I got home, my dogs would greet me, give me my love and kisses, and then immediately want to go to the suitcase. They weren't afraid of the suitcase. (laughs) So they knew what was going to happen. And uh, so I'd unzip it for them, and they'd lightly dig through all my clothes and know exactly which was the toy, and they'd go play with it. But I know exactly what you're talking about because the bargain bin toys that we got for like 99 cents that the local <laughs> pet store was trying to get rid of, they love those toys. And meanwhile, you know, I go buy the uh, you know $29 um, squirrel in the tree toy, and they're like, eh. <laughs> We're on the air, so tell the truth. Did you ever keep any of those toys for yourself? <laughs> There's a lot of them I like. I keep telling them, no, no, don't play with that one. Play with this one because yeah, daddy likes this. Oh, yeah, there's some real good ones out there. I wish I had those toys when I was a kid. That's for sure. <laughs> but I think it's a lot like children. Though. Uh, you know, you give a baby a, a gift, and nine times out of ten, they want to play with the box instead of the gift. So um, I think it's probably a good reason I never had children because I'd probably be too old school with them and just say, here, <laughs> here son. Go play with the box. <laughs> Let Dad have the power. <laughs> <ranger>. <laughs> oh God! All right. Well, listen. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back with a uh, container conversation with Rita Mae Brown. I want to talk to Rita Mae a little bit more about the book "A Hiss Before Dying" and um, uh, history. You know, digging through the history of it and the research. I always find that fascinating. So, everybody, hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. 
get the stinky dog away from me. Bad breath and bad gas. Petey stopped eating. All his hair fell out. Itching, licking, missing fur. At least $5,000 in vet bill. Creams, antibiotics, sprays. No results. Everything we tried failed except the Dynavite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something healthy. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. The shedding is stopped and the itching is stopped. Her coat is now soft, it's silky, it's healthy and shiny and glossy. She's got life, she's got energy. Tons of energy, no more bad smell. Dynavite's the bomb. <gasps> Dynavite is the best thing that's ever happened to my dogs, you know, besides me, of course. <laughs> 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Uh, continue our discussion with my uh, my good friend and New York Times bestselling author, Rita Mae Brown, uh, talking about the latest book, A Hiss Before Dying. Now, Rita Mae, in the book itself, I know that you do a lot of research on this. I, I would like to know a little bit more about the whole process of how do you come up with the latest idea for the murder mystery, and then how do you determine what research needs to be done, and when you're to a point where I think I've got a good handle on it, I'm ready to write this book or let Sneaky Pie write this book. You know, my mother said when I was a kid, ideas are like bats. They fly in and out of your head. And I could not tell you how I get the idea to do anything, but once I get it, I try to go to original documents. In other words, I, I don't use a computer or that. If I can get to the original document, I will. If not, then I'll try to get to a facsimile. Fortunately, I'm by the University of Virginia, which is the Federal Deposits Library. It's got everything in there. And I'm not that far from the Library of Congress if I need to, to get up to Washington. But what I have had to really work hard on is this 18th century stuff. I'm pretty good with history, and I was always good with it. And I, you know, I'm well-trained. But what I have to keep doing, Tim, is putting myself back in that time and not judging them or writing them as though they know what we know. So here you have Virginia, and slavery is normal. That's all anybody knows. Whether they're enslaved or whether they're free, that's life. Mm. Now, if you're a slave, you probably would rather not be. But again, it is life. It is life that women are secondary to men. I mean, and there are some men who don't think women are capable of logic. Now, that's not everybody. But all of these things that we now will fight for and say, well, this is wrong, well, they didn't feel that way. They loved their animals. But there were most people who felt like Genesis, you know, you have the power to name them and they're less than you are. Of course, many people mm -hmm. feel that way today. And so they don't have any problem, certain people mistreating them, others treat them well. And a very few, and we have a few of them in this book, listen and watch and are capable to some point, as we all are, of learning from animals if you choose to do so. But that has been, in some ways, the greatest test is setting aside the 21st century and 21st century morality and returning to the 18th. And do you think that is uh, – going back to to those days, uh, do you think it's a matter of the slaves, for instance, they would like something better, but that's just the way life is? Or was it because they didn't know there was even something better or how to go about achieving that? Well, in, it's funny you bring this up because in Virginia, there were 12,000 freed blacks. They were freemen. 
They'd never been slaves. And then there were, I guess we had about 200, but did we have 150 or 200,000 slaves? We had a lot. We were ultimately surpassed by the Delta states, the Deep South, but we had one-fifth of the population of the original 13 colonies, and we produced one-third of the commerce. Virginia was extremely powerful. I mean, there's a reason 10 presidents came from Virginia. But what I have found as I've been doing my research and reading the slave chronicles and this and that is people are competitive. It doesn't matter where they are, Tim. And those that were enslaved were competitive with one another sometimes. And if you could rise to a good position and get into the house, life was better than if you couldn't, Yeah, you know, and people that were highly skilled could be loaned out. They'd meet other people. And little by little, there wasn't an underground railroad yet, but there were people who ran away. If people had a, a bad master or an ugly mistress, and there's an ugly mistress in this book, they'll run away. You know, and maybe they get caught, maybe they don't. And it's, we don't have the Dred Scott case yet. So things are still pretty murky. And Vermont is just in the process of outlawing slavery. Vermont had something like, no kidding, six slaves. That was it in the whole state. Oh, wow. So, you know, reading this, it's completely fascinating. And it's like anything else. There are people that are brilliant. There are people that are average. And there are people that don't have a lot upstairs. And water seeks its own level. <laughs> and the white people that don't have a lot upstairs wind up doing not just menial labor, but the jobs that may have some, not, I should say, authority to them, you know, like being a cop, although there weren't cops. And you keep looking at this and you're thinking, do you know what? Nothing changes. Human animals were animals, were pack animals, just like a pack of dogs, and we will continually organize ourselves in vertical hierarchies. And nobody wants to be on the bottom. You know, I read these things, and I am utterly and completely fascinated with everybody. Again, I try not to judge, and I know that we haven't gotten to the Continental Congress yet, but they gave us 20 years. We were supposed to come back to slavery in 1808, and of course, the War of 1812 is right in front of us. So we didn't. We just could not get there for a variety of reasons, some of them out of our control and some of them most emphatically in our control. But you look at this and you realize there really is such a thing as fate. There's the odd event that changes everything, you know, that comes out of the blue. And there is such a thing as the power of the human personality. doesn't matter what century it is. Very interesting. Very interesting. So when you talk about the recent book, A His Before Dying, you know, this is based as a historical narrative. It's based in post-revolutionary past, as it says. When you dig through this history, do you find a topic that you're interested in and then do the research on that and base the story on that particular research that you've done? Or is it more of you're just reading along and something catches your eye and think, wow, this is this may be something good we want to uh, sort of do for the next No, I, I know what I'm looking for. And if I'm wrong, I will change it. You know, I, I don't get research to shore up my ideas, so to speak. I just try to look for, for what I think might be there. And if I'm wrong, I, I will... I will do that. But we have, we have um, something happens in the 18th century. I mean, it, it starts with the report of a theft. And that theft pays off in a graveyard in the 21st century. And also, one of the big estates exists intact. There are remnants of the other one, and these happen to be true. I mean, I drive past these places at least once or twice a week. And, of course, that gives me a really rich 
texture to draw from. And Harry, our main character in the 21st century, she knows a little bit about history. I mean, she's not really wrapped up in it. She's more interested in farming and how they farmed then and this kind of stuff. But she keeps stumbling onto stuff. And particularly when a grave site at St. Lutheran Church is desecrated. Why? These people have been dead since, what, 1783? Mm -hmm. So what's going on here? Well, Ultimately, of course, it pays off, and you know, the last chapter, you know exactly what's going on here. What's going on here from 1786, when the 18th century time, and 2017 or 16, I forget what year did it. And I love that, because I think we all live in that. We just don't know it. We're in a web of time. That's a really interesting way of putting that. And I always find it fascinating, the fact that there is – I've always been interested in history as well. I was always good at it. I don't know if it was because I was interested in it that in school I was good at it or the fact that it was one of the only few subjects I was really good at that I became interested in. I don't know which came first, chicken and egg. But I was always fascinated by you know the history of it. And I think the thing that fascinates me most today – or I should say fascinates me, but I just – shake my head trying to realize about history is the fact that you know we all know how important history is but i think there are so many people that really don't know the whole story whether we're talking about slavery or uh, you know revolutionary times whatever it may be they just know a glance of it and they take or they heard it from someone else and they take that for fact instead of actually going back and doing the research to see you know what is this all about and like you said did i get it right am i on the right track here or is, it, is there something totally different you know, Tim, whoever wins the war writes the history, whatever war it is. And and I think a lot of times people don't want to dig because they really don't want to know the truth. The truth is disquieting. It forces you to ask questions of the time as well as yourself. What would I do in this time knowing only what they knew? Do I really think I'm better than the people who came before me? I mean, that's what gets me is the utter arrogance of thinking you're better than they were. No, you're not. You just live in a different time, and you know how things are going to turn out. But you don't know how what's going to turn out now. None of us do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some people that are very passionate about politics on either side. They will probably be proven wrong. In 100 years, people will look back on both sides of these fights and think, geez, they were idiots. <laughs> well, we weren't. We were working with what we knew and also our personalities. I swear to God, Tim, there are people that are born to be injustice collectors. You know, that's what they want to do. And then there are people like Mary Barra who will take on responsibility and revitalize a huge corporate culture that was shooting itself in the foot, you know, General Motors. And you look at this and you realize this never changes. There are the people that can deal with what's in front of them and make it work and own up to their mistakes. And they're the people that are just looking for someone to blame it on. So that, so that they don't have to be responsible. And if you root through history, I mean, I guess for me, the clearest example of that is the War of the Roses. Tudors are usurpers. They ultimately won the War of the Roses, but they usurped the throne from the Plantagenets. And everything changed. And everything was rewritten and redone so that it would look like, you know, Henry VII was right and then Henry VIII and whatever, whatever. And it's a clear case of manipulation of history. So I just think it's what you do when you win. Very interesting. 
Well, the way times are, we don't know who's going to win or if it's ever going to end. <laughs> that chapter is yet to be determined. But uh, we do know, as as you eloquently put it, uh, you know, follow the lead of our animals, and not only will they uh, lead us in the right path, but they'll also solve these mysteries of life. And uh, that's what you're going to get when you read a hiss before dying. That's for sure. Well, don't you think the beauty of it, Tim, is that an animal lives exactly in the moment. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I talk about it quite often. I, my uh, latest book, you know, Talking With Dogs and Cats, which you graciously uh, gave us a little uh, thank you in that, a little tidbit in that, and I appreciate that. But I talk about that quite often in the fact that, you know, animals do live in the present moment. We know that. We've heard this. We've heard this terminology for years. But what people don't understand is the fact that whatever the animal went through in the past, whether it was good, bad, or, or indifferent, they learn from that, apply it to the present. As soon as we allow them to release that past and focus on the present moment, the more they can accomplish. They can accomplish their purpose, their reason for being here, uh, help us with our purpose in life. And that's the key. But we often, you know, uh, especially with rescues, we refer to their past. We label them as their past, and that's not who they are. And I think that's as humans, we have a lot to learn from that as well. You know, we lived a past, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, we learn from that, but we should apply everything to the present moment and find out what our purpose is for being here and try to, you know, do our best to fulfill that every day. And if we can let the animals help us along the way, that's even better. You know how I think of you? I think of you and I as being on a track. You know, we're in a foot race and we're on the same track. We're on the same team. We're just in different lanes. I do it in fictional terms and you do it in nonfiction terms. But I think both of us passionately care about, first of all, respecting other life forms and learning from them and realizing that it's not just the intellect. There's love there. There's healing. Absolutely. I do believe that obviously there's been a lot of people in my life that have helped form me uh, to who I am today. But I think some of the greatest lessons are probably perhaps the most important lessons I've learned in life and definitely applies to what I do uh, for uh, from a business aspect is directly learn from the animals. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for the animals in my life and the animals I get to work with from, uh, you know, my clients and uh, working with rescue and, and these type of things. So I think there's great lessons. And yes, I'll be on that path with you the whole way. <laughs> I'll let you lead the way and just plow through everything and, and I'll just follow along nicely behind. You know what, though? People, I mean, many of your listeners, I hope, have, have come to see you. But for those that haven't seen you, they don't realize how tall you are. So all you have to do is walk into the room, and most of us are going to follow you. Uh, I have a big presence, but I have a bigger voice, uh, <laughs> whether you like it or not. If you don't see me, you're definitely going to hear me. That's for dang sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's fascinating that human beings are attracted to height. George Washington was 6'4". Richard I was 6'4", 6'5". Most of the Plantagenets were big. But when Alexander I defeated Darius and went to his mother, and he went with his best friend, the mother knelt down to his best friend because Alexander was small. Well, I don't know why it is, but we associate height with leadership. So see, you just have this extra advantage. I'm like a little Jack Russell. I, I got to run around fast and bite. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Nip of their ankles. You'll get their attention one way or another. <laughs> get a death from the ankles down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. 
All right. Well, I'll tell you, we're coming to the end of our show today. Read me. I want to ask you one last question here before I let you go. When uh, all your wonderful fans and all the listeners pick up a copy of A Hiss Before Dying and they, they take a read at it, what do you hope they learn from it? What's the, the one thing you as uh, you know, an author of this want to accomplish? Are there multiple things or is there one lesson you want to teach or uh, one thing you want to get across? Well, there's two lessons, and the one I always want to teach, and that is have respect for other life forms. You know, if you don't want to rescue an animal or whatever, you know, send 10 bucks to your local shelter, but do what you can. But the other thing is don't sit in judgment of people who live before you. Respect them, too. Absolutely. Say so we wouldn't be here today without them, you know, paving the path to get us here. So. Well, and Tim, who walks on water? <laughs> is there such a thing I mean we all make mistakes some of them are terrible and big and some of them are petty and silly but you know everybody I mean yes there are some monsters in the world and in life I guess there always will be there always have been, but not that many most people are pretty darn decent they're doing the best they can absolutely so uh, honor that and, and if you can help them out along the way uh, that's what you should do and that's uh, I think it's a good lesson so everybody uh, pick up a copy of A Hiss Before Dying another fantastic book by uh, Rita Mae Brown and Sneaky Pie Brown we gotta give Sneaky Pie some creds here for sure but Rita Mae always wonderful talking to you uh, You know, continue great success and uh, I look forward to, to seeing you and uh, speaking with you again real soon me too absolutely all right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the producers and sponsors for making this show possible. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. Write in a blog, an article, or in a book. And who knows? You may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets. Every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.